today we're going to cover John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. So John 4, verses 43 through 54. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. Um, the last time we were together, we finished up uh, the woman at the well. And here we continue right after that in the sequence of events here. <clears throat> Alright, let me read these verses for us. Starting in uh, verse 43. Now after the two days, He departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him, having seen all the things He did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where He had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he had gotten better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Father, as we approach Your Word, Father, we are thankful for it. Uh, we pray that uh, Your Word will uh, illumine our hearts and our minds today and change us. And we ask these things in Your name. Amen. Well, there are uh, many times when we get to Scripture that we see some things that at first glance may appear to be a contradiction. Uh, there are um, many people today who say they don't believe the Bible or believe it's credible because it has so many contradictions. Okay, that's what people will say, the skeptics, uh, the critics, I should say, uh, will, will make that claim. Well, uh, Dr. Sproul made, uh, um, he, in, this, in this part of his commentary, tells of a time when he was in seminary and he had a fellow a uh, student in seminary with him who was a graduate of MIT. In fact, he had graduated at the top of his class, number one of his class at MIT. He says his IQ was like 180. Okay, so a brilliant individual. And he came to seminary because he was convinced of the truth of the Christian faith, and he wanted to learn more uh, in seminary. However, at some point, and I think they said, I can't remember what year he said they were in, he became... Uh, dismayed, he became uh, a little bit confused and he came to Sproul and he said, you know, I'm not sure I can accept the words of the Bible as true anymore. And of course, R.C. said, well, why? He said, well, he cited contradictions. He says, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. And I just, I don't see how we can take it as credible. And so um, Dr. Sproul said, well, listen, how about this? You go cite, write all these contradictions down. And let's meet back up again tomorrow, and we'll go over them. 
we'll look at the contradictions that you cited. He, um, because he said he, he, he thought of about 50 contradictions in the Bible. Well, the next day, the man uh, came and met with Sproul, and he said he'd, he was tired and unkept. He'd probably been up all night, okay? He said he and his friends helped him. Okay, they got together, and they were looking at the Bible, and they came up with about 30, 30 contradictions that they identified in the Bible. And Dr. Sproul says one by one, uh, we went through each of them, and pretty much established that there were not contradictions, that there are other ways to look at these things uh, as terms of the Bible and interpreting uh, the Bible. He, at the end of it, the guy he was he was not satisfied because basically he says, look at all the he called it mental gymnastics you had to go through to not disprove but to. To help understand what, what we're doing. Look at all this work that it took to, to do this. And he, he left uh, not satisfied. And Besky Sproul said that they basically their friendship ended not too long after that. But today, uh, we're in portions of Scripture that um, looks, apparently, when we read these verses at the surface level, apparently, uh, they, they, excuse me, they appear to contradict themselves. Um, and John, we see here right here in the first part of our reading in verses uh, 43 and 44, it says, Now after the two days, that was when he was in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And then in the very next verse, so when he came into Galilee, they welcomed him. Okay, do you see what we're dealing with here okay um, Jesus of course is from or grew up okay we know he's born in Bethlehem but he grew up where in Nazareth which is in Galilee right so Galilee would be his own home country his home hometown so John tells us here that 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 Jesus has says that a prophet has no honor in his home hometown. But wait a minute, now the Galileans are welcoming him. So what is it? What's going on here? Well, uh, the critics again will look at this and say that the Bible contradicts itself. This is why we can't trust it. Okay, that's what the critic will say. They'll come to verses, see, right here, this is an example of the contradiction, therefore we cannot trust the Bible, we throw it all out. And... um, Many scholars have gone through a lot of mental gymnastics, as we said earlier, to try to reconcile these two uh, verses. Um, but I'm, of course, I'm using Sproul's commentary, and so I'm following his teaching. And so, what he requests is that before we go through all those mental gymnastics, is let's see if there are any alternatives. And I've asked uh, uh, Pastor Matthew too to, when I present what we have here, to weigh in just to offer his perspective because I think it's helpful. Many people will say that what John is saying is that Jesus left Judea for Galilee because of all the hostility from the officials in Jerusalem. In short, uh, the people of Judea did not honor him, so he decided to go somewhere else, to somewhere who, that would be more welcoming to his ministry, namely Galilee. The same people will point out, well, see, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is where? In Judea, right? So there's not a contradiction. That's what they'll say. Okay, that's one way of looking at this. 
Well, Jesus. So therefore, Jesus received no honor in his homeland, Judea, which is where he was from. He was experiencing some hostility. But the only problem with that is, again, what does the New Testament regularly say, or how how do they regularly refer to Jesus' hometown? Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, right? That is correct. Um, that is what the scriptures most often refer to him as, in which, again, we've already established, is in Galilee even though he was born in Bethlehem. Well, Nazareth is where he grew up. That was his home. That was where he was known, okay, as being from. So to say that he was going to Galilee because he had no honor in Judea is a little iffy. It's like, eh, I don't necessarily see that is um, is, is actually what's going on here. So, Spool says, if we take the position that Galilee was Jesus' home country, okay, then we need to reconcile these two verses. If indeed, for the purposes of our interpreting these verses, Galilee is his hometown, then, then what do we do? Well, he points out a couple of things. He says, and, and Spool reminds us, he says, one thing we don't know, okay, we have the written word here of the Apostle John, but one thing we don't know is in what sense or um, what nuance John quoted Jesus' statement about honor in, his, in one's hometown. Okay, we, we don't have the opportunity of hearing John's voice. Right? We, don't have, we don't have the opportunity to hear his tone of voice or even maybe his facial expressions that he would use uh, when one was speaking. Um, rarely do we see in uh, the Scriptures... Uh, rarely do we have an editorial comment or anything about the way in which Jesus spoke. We never, we don't, ha- we have some, but very little, but not much. If you notice about the way or the tone of voice that he would have used, so it's, we weren't there. We don't have the privilege, and y'all know the example. You can, when, you can tell how someone is speaking by the tone of voice. If I were just to, to narrate, you know, write down what someone said. It could be taken a lot different than if you were there listening to the way someone said it, right? And you, you know this. You've seen this, right? It's a huge difference. Um, it's, I've said it many times. It's, it's not often what you say. It's how you say it, right? It's not often what you say, but how you say it. That's why we have to be so careful with how we say things and how things are perceived. But we don't have the, the, the option of knowing that. Okay, about the way Jesus said this. Um, back up here. So, so sometimes these statements that we read here and just the bare content, we just have written words, right? Uh, they may seem to mean one thing, but uh, if they happen to have been said uh, sarcastically or uh, using irony, then it can mean something completely different. Right, because a sarcastic statement, right? If you just read it, it could, it, you know, it, the the meaning that you take if you just read a statement is completely different than how it was intended, right? And how it was given. So, for the sake of uh, argument here, this is Spurley said. So, let's agree that Jesus' hometown was Galilee, and so let's suppose that when John wrote that the people came out and welcomed Jesus, he was using. Sarcasm. Uh, the support for this view comes in what follows here, because uh, the people often 
welcomed him, as we see here, but they were looking for something different. They welcomed him for the wrong reasons. Okay, they, as we could, we'll see as we get into these verses, uh, they were looking uh, for signs and wonders. Remember, the, it says the nobleman had heard about the water to the wine, right? They, that's an amazing miracle. Okay, so they're just kind of coming to him saying, okay, I wonder what he's going to do now. Maybe we can get him to do something good for us. Uh, and they gave no real honor to him as uh, the Messiah. Unlike the Samaritans who we just left, uh, they acknowledged him as the Messiah. And then they, they said, hey, please stay with us. Please, and they, he did. He stayed for, for two days. Um, but we see, a different, um, we see a different reception here. And so at, at this point, I want to just stop and call on Pastor Matthew because he and I discussed this a little bit um, and offer just a few moments for him to, to kind of just weigh in on how he sees these verses. I'd say two things. Um, R.C. Sproul wrote in a book, um, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, two chapters that I think are helpful, um, thinking about contradictions and paradoxes in the Bible. And a contradiction, a logical contradiction, means that there are two statements that are both logical that cannot both be simultaneously true at the same time. And so it sounds like that's what the man came to Dr. Sproul and said. I see... These things that are logically, they're both true, but put together, they can't. They, they are in contradiction. And in the Bible, there is no such thing as, as that com- kind of contradiction. There are paradoxes in the Bible, things that seem difficult or are hard sayings that are not easy or clear to understand. But you always, in interpreting Scripture, you always move from what is plain and, and easily understood into the things that are more difficult or more, more hard sayings. Um, so I think that number one, as we think about interpreting the Bible, you would you always go to Scripture, the things that are plain and and easily seen and understood, and then you go to the thing that's difficult. Otherwise, you, the believer, are backed into a corner, and the Word of God is never backed into a corner. Uh, so I think that's first principle number one. But regarding what John says here. Um, the scriptures are plain that it says Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. I think that there is fulfillment of that here because Jesus had just left Samaria. He was in a town that was at their time considered to be half-breed Christians. These were not people who were considered even full-fledged members of the covenant family because they were a mixture. They were not a holy people. So when he goes there and the people are just flocking to him and this woman is running around saying, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. And then he stays after they begged him to stay. He goes into his own home country and there isn't that kind of welcome. It says they received him, but because they saw the signs, they wanted more signs. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to to see things that were nice and miraculous that no one else had, had ever done. So there was some novelty to Jesus, but in the in the overarching sense, think of in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, uh, there is a coming to his own, and yet they stumbled over him as the stumbling block. He came to his people, uh, the Jewish nation who had covenant privileges and covenant promises and special love from God put on them, and they, by and large, the end of the book of Acts, they rejected him. Uh, they said, no, we can't have anything to do with him. So I think that's that, there's a sense of that in, in this passage. He came to his own, and his own received him not. 
Um, so I, I do think what happened in Samaria and then looking at all of the Gospels, how was Jesus received by his people? Most of the time he wasn't. Um, they stumbled over him. As the prophet said, they would. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Anybody, any other question or comment before we get into the meat of these verses? They want to, don't want to confuse anyone here. Don't want to leave you with any questions that may be unanswered. Okay, thank you, Matthew, for helping with that. <clears throat> so going back to uh, taking, and by the way, um, Dr. MacArthur's uh, the study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, he cites the same um, here for these verses that John was probably speaking from a sense of irony, just saying, "Hey, there's there's a, a lack of of welcoming here because the people, or there, there's a welcome, but not for the right reasons." I guess that's what I meant to say, um, because the nobleman here comes seeking Jesus, but not as the Messiah. He's not coming to Jesus because he heard he's, he, this is the Messiah. He he wants what. He he's got a sick son. He wants to see power and gifts. That's what he wants. That's that's why he's there. And so, of course, this kind of thing, uh, this kind of approach to Jesus happened regularly during his earthly ministry. And if we're honest, it still happens today. Uh, there are people who rush to hear the gospel, but only for what they can get out of it. Right? That that happens uh, here today. Maybe maybe there's a disease that needs healing or a very tough circumstance in life and they come rushing. They just want Jesus to fix that thing. They don't really want to surrender their life to Him as their Savior. Okay, so people still do this kind of stuff uh, here uh, today. Well, word uh, had gotten around uh, in Jesus' day about the signs He was performing. And so... People did seek him out, uh, but again, only for a certain benefit that they might receive. Um, many of them had uh, no sense of their need for uh, repentance, and they did not come seeking to bow to him as their Lord and Savior. And so John writes here in the in the in verse forty six. He says, "So this is Jesus. He came again into Cana in Galilee, which he had, which is where he had made the, the water uh, wine." If you remember, that was his first miracle. Uh, it did create quite a stir. Okay, word uh, got around a good bit. So his reputation was known in the community. Uh, and so as a result here in the second half of verse 46 and 47, it says, so at, And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This uh, is, uh, is this man is called an official here. Uh, the Greek term literally means royal official. That's what it means here. This nobleman. Okay, he was most likely a de- an official who was in the service of King Herod Antipas, who was, if you remember, at this time he was a tetrarch of this region of Galilee. So, this man had status. This man had wealth. Okay, he had position. So we can assume that he had the means uh, to bring whatever resources he needed to bring in to treat his son. We can just assume that based on his, uh, his, um, his station in, in life. Uh, but apparently nothing has worked. And so he is now completely desperate. And so 
he remembers, hey, there, I remember hearing about this wedding where this man had turned all this water into wine and not just ordinary wine, but into really, really good wine. Uh, so he probably heard of that. And it says that the official was from Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was about 16 miles uh, northeast of Cana. If you're familiar with your Old Testament map, uh, Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so about 16 miles. And so he's there. He's now here with Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus. And so basically he comes to Jesus and says, hey, please come with me. He doesn't really tell him a whole lot. Hey, I want you, you got to come with me. We've got to go. We've got to go travel 16 miles. We've got to go, you know, which was not easy to do, right? Didn't hop in the, the car and go. It took some time, right? It took some effort. But he says, you got to go with me. you got to go now. we got to go now. My son is about to die. Uh, so basically, he, in his mind, he, as he approaches Jesus, hey, this this man can do miracles. So if I can get this man uh, to my house, then he can save my son. He's desperate. He can. He, this is this is his plan. And so he begs Jesus to come home with him. Uh, the language used here indicates that he repeatedly begged Jesus to heal his son, to come home. With him, so he can heal his son. Well, Jesus does not agree to go. Now, Jesus knew the heart of this man. He knew he had come uh, approaching him out of an earthly need. Okay, his earthly need. He's 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 not does not acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. He, he, that's not why he's there. Um, the the a motivation the apparent motivation in this nobleman this official was centered around Jesus's reputation as a miracle worker not Jesus's reputation as messiah that's why he's there and so at this point this man has no desire for salvation he doesn't he's not here acknowledging he needs salvation he's here just because he wants Jesus to save his son's life and then in verse 48, uh, Jesus said this. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the the you here is plural. Okay, he's not talking just about the nobleman. Okay, he's he's addressing all the people. Okay, uh, the, the people here, he's, he's, he's addressing the Galileans as a whole, not just this, this one man. And this statement from Jesus was a rebuke. This is a firm rebuke coming out of the lips of Jesus. Um, because, and, and of course, Jesus did this on several occasions. Uh, if you remember uh, later on the road to Emmaus, there were two, you remember that encounter, right? The two disciples, uh, all these events had happened in Jerusalem. Jesus had been crucified uh, and was buried, and they were just in despair. They had, they they were they were just lost. And if you remember, as of course Jesus joined them, and Jesus hid his true identity from them. He didn't reveal that right away. And as they walked uh, the road to Emmaus, he said to them, "We have the words over in Luke twenty four. He says, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken." So you see that on Jesus' mind there, right? Okay, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
And but he didn't leave them there. That's the good part, right? He didn't leave them in their foolishness. What does it say? Then he began. He went all the way back to Moses and all of the prophets, and Jesus explained everything to them. Wow, that would have been an amazing, an amazing walk. He explained that uh, their need to understand and not just understand, but believe the scriptures. That's what Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He said, "Listen, know your scriptures, and you can understand them, but you got to believe them. You got to believe what is said is true, and it will happen." And that was Jesus's his point here. And of course, in that situation, and this is back here with this nobleman. He's he's basically Jesus saying, "Y'all just you just want to see signs, you know, and you're not going to believe unless you see some sign." Um, and again, if uh, we are honest with ourselves, we're like those people sometimes. Um, we develop calluses on our hearts. Um, it's you know. We approach Jesus as some sort of divine miracle worker, and he's just you know we just come to him when we need something. Um, it's it's not like uh, it's, it's it's almost like we're like them. Well, I'm not going to believe you unless you do something amazing in my life. You know, I have a uh, some sort of wonder that I need work. I have a uh, you need to deliver God. I expect you to deliver me out of some situation, right? Some I need you to come doing a work. And I'm not going to believe you unless you do that. Well, that's. A dangerous place to be, isn't it? We don't we don't test or tempt the Lord our God. We don't we don't do that. We don't come to Him uh, just asking or for the benefits of a relationship with Him. That's not the way He comes to us. I mean, He comes to us as our Savior, um, and we have to approach Him with a sense of need of repentance and to surrender our life, not because of what He can do for me, right? Because what what does Scripture say? It's going to get hard. So uh, don't expect Him to deliver you out of tough situations. And if, but how many times do we do that? How many times do you see believers asking for the deliverance from some sort of situation or some sort of healing? Uh, and God sometimes does that. But most of the time, what is he, he leads you through them, right? He takes you through those difficult circumstances, right? And He's right along there. So what? So that at the end, when you come out the other end, you praise God. Look at what God just did. I asked Him to remove the tough situation. Well, He didn't do it. But He sustained me through the whole thing. Now, is that the kind... What kind of Savior do you want? You want the Savior who just gives you everything you ask for? Well, what do we call parents who treat their kids that way? Spoil. Spoil. Right? That's what we call. Well, that's not the kind of God we serve, is it? He's not there just to, to give us what we want. Well, um, the this nobleman, this official, he didn't waste any time. There is a sense of urgency with him. And so he says in verse 49, he says, Sir, come down now before my child dies. Come down before he dies. It was as he was saying, Listen, man, I don't have any time to discuss the Bible with you or discuss theology. I need you to come now. It's immediate. The need is now. But Jesus still... Uh, refused to go with him. Instead, what does he say in verse 50? He says, go, your son will live. <clears throat> Dr. Sproul said here, I would, uh, would love to know how he said that. Um, back to you know our statement earlier, we don't have the privilege. We weren't there. 
We didn't hear Jesus say that. But he said, I would love to know how he said it. You know, did he say something like, uh, man, get out of here, your son's going to be fine. I, I don't think he said it that way. Right? R.C. doesn't think he said it that way. He says, I believe it was something like this. Uh, go your way. Uh, your son's going to be fine. I'm not, I'm not going with you, but everything's going to be okay. Um, however Jesus said it, there must have been something in how he said it. Why? Because what? The man believed him. Right? That's, that's obvious. So, whatever was happened there, you know, however it was said, that, okay. Alright. That's enough. My son's going to be fine. Um, here, again, we, we've seen Jesus' heart. Jesus said that, you know, hey, it's a rebuke. You people just want to see signs and wonders, and that's the only way you're going to believe. Um, but so you might think, well, well, maybe Jesus wouldn't heal him here, but he does. But Jesus does heal him. The man, the motives are all wrong here. You notice the motives of this guy are all wrong. But do you see the heart of Jesus here? There's, there's someone in this case, this man's son. I don't know how old he is. They're dying at the point of death. And Jesus has compassion. Even though the guy's here for all the wrong reasons. But Jesus has compassion. He, This unbelieving man, He, he heals him. He heals the official's son. Um, he has great compassion, great sympathy. Um, he's, he's, got, he, he's displayed marvelous graciousness here uh, in spite of a faithless demand for miracles. Show us signs. Do us a wonder. Jesus, um, just just show us what you can do. You know, it's like uh, you just go to a, a circus act. You just want them to perform, right? Just do a trick for me. Um, and but 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 Jesus, out of his compassion, his heart for people, he heals. Uh, he heals the man's son. And so, one minute, this nobleman, this official, he's panicking. He's begging Jesus to go with me. You got to go with me. You got to come. You got to come. He's panicking. And the next, it's done. He understands. The second half of verse 50, it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So in the middle of, I imagine was a very chaotic time, um, he heard the promise, he heard the words straight from Jesus' mouth, and he believed it. He um, he did. He, he did trust. There, there's a matter of trust here. He trusted the word of Christ because he didn't say, "Okay, now I got to go home and see for myself." He didn't say that. Really, he believes him. He says he he believed him. Um, he didn't. He didn't drag Jesus home with him. He looked by the hand and said, "Okay, I hear you, but you still got to come with me." No, he believed, and then he went his way. Um, he calmed down. He stopped pleading for Jesus uh, to come with him, and then he he goes home. In verse uh, 51, it says, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Now, put yourself in this man's place just for a moment. 
you just traveled 16, you heard this man who changes water into wine is in the area. And so you travel 16 miles to go see him because your son's dying. And you are in panic mode. Like we, we tried to, you know, he's begging, he's pleading, Jesus, you got to come with me, you got to come with me. And so Jesus says, okay, your son's going to live. He calms down, he leaves. Now, as he's going back home, a suburbs meet him and says, hey, your son's recovering. What, what would be your first reaction? What, what, would, what do you think? I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what I, I guess, as, as Sproul said, he said, his first reaction would be, I would jump up in there and rejoice. Praise the Lord, you know. Hey, my son is going to live. But what, what, is, what, is, what does the man do? He didn't, he didn't, we don't have that. He says he asked them a question. Right? That's what he says. He asked them a question. So in, in, in verses 52 and 53, so he said, So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he, what? That's an amazing uh, question that he asked. Again, I, I don't think I would have reacted in the same way. But then the wonderful piece that we see here in verse 53, the second half. And he himself, the nobleman, believed in all his household. The man, this nobleman, this, this man of means, of power, of position came to someone looking for a, a miracle. He was desperate. He did not come looking for salvation. He wasn't coming uh, to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. But this man had an encounter with the Messiah, whether he knew it or not. Didn't he? He encountered the living Son of God, incarnate, Word in flesh. He talked to Him face-to-face, in a panic mode. Absolutely panicked. Come in for all the wrong reasons. But after what Jesus did, the nobleman took the next step. He believed. And all of his household believed. And the, 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 what's understood here is he believed in Jesus was the Messiah. That's, that's the belief here. Okay? That's what he's believing in. What an amazing encounter. Right, an encounter with Christ that could have gone so many different directions, but because God is sovereign and because Christ is there, He's here uh, to minister to people, to meet their needs, even when they're asking the wrong questions. Isn't that just amazing? Even and can't we take some uh, some I don't know, just some encouragement out of this that even. But as as a child of God, I mean, as when you we're, we're going to ask things that we sh- of, of God that we shouldn't ask. Okay, we're going to come to Him with wrong intentions. But just to know that uh, that He loves us and He loves us enough to even deal with us, and He doesn't turn us away. He deals with us even when we come wrong headed and with wrong intentions. He still loves us. That means He's going to give us what we're asking for, but He's still He's not going to turn us away. He's going to, to, to be there for us and then carry us through it. Um, Mar- uh, Matthew Henry commented here. He says, The father was a nobleman, yet his son was sick. 
Honors and titles are no security from sickness and death. The greatest men must go to themselves to God and must become as beggars. Remember what we said the other week about um, telling uh, or pointing people uh, to Christ about the, about being beggars. You know, there, we have men who have degrees and 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 all these things and letters behind their name, and we have pastors. But at the end of the day, all any of us are what one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find bread. That's really all we are. Any questions or any comments? We finished a little bit earlier. We got about five minutes left in our time. Okay, hearing none. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, forgive us when we approach you, Father, um, with wrong motives. Father, we, we're all guilty of that at some point. And um, Father, forgive us. Thank you for not turning your back on us. Thank you for loving us, Father, as a loving Father uh, and Savior would, would do. And Father, continue to use your word to change us and to guide us each and every day that uh, we may serve you better uh, in this life and we uh, may have the courage to tell others about you and what you've done in our lives. And we pray that you will get all the glory for the sake of your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.